Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation, a Stranger Things podcast. I'm Robin. I'm Heidi. And today we commence with season three, discussing chapter one. Susie, do you copy? Hey, everybody. Before we begin today, I wanted to make a just quick detour and explain something that I think is important for contextualizing this season. And that is, many of these episodes were recorded prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So honestly, coming at this season, this particular season, given what's happening, to be specifically looking at this portrayal of Russia and the way that so much of its evil is portrayed as very caricatured and overly stylized and sort of stereotypical quote-unquote evil Russia, given the fact that we are seeing real evil happening right now in 2022. So that juxtaposition is a little bit uncomfortable. And so we just just wanted to acknowledge that Um, in the show notes, you will also find if you're interested, there are some resources for ways to support Ukraine. And moving forward into the season, when we talk about Russia, it is strictly based on how they are portrayed within this series. It does not in any way reflect how we feel about what is happening. But yeah, just wanted to make a quick mention of that up front. And now on with the podcast. selections for today we we went a little bit different uh for today's today's selections we actually went to h mart i don't know if it's just local to us but i think it's at least national yes my friend in seattle goes to h mart all the time well there you go yeah so h mart in asian market <laughs> and uh we got uh we got some bubble tea i got a green tea matcha and i got a strawberry fruit tea with popping mango it's really, really good, and it yeah. it felt it felt appropriate considering that this episode introduces us to Starcourt Mall. I I don't know why that feels relevant. I guess because like the food court. I would pay real money to see Hopper be given a bubble tea, <laughs> <laughs> and like how he would react to like a bubble tea. I would love to see Elle react to a bubble tea. She would love it. Yeah, because she loves sweet things that are sweet. Yeah, she does. And, you know, she likes learning new things. Hopper would be just very like, I'm too old for this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, now that we've acquired uh, something coffee adjacent. Yeah. Let's proceed with contemplation. The kind of cool thing is that Stranger Things 3 was the first time that you and I actually watched the show together. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we did the we did the thing. We binged it on yeah. July 4th. We went all the way through. And we were already kind of contemplating a podcast. And so we actually recorded our fears, hopes, expectations. And then we also recorded our like immediate reactions right after just on my phone and i may drop in a clip or two as we go but moving into this current season it i don't think it's a secret at this point if you've been listening to the episodes that we're not the biggest fans of season three but i want to go ahead and say like right off the top that our goal moving forward is to try and see the good here Mm -hmm. you know and give the benefit of the doubt for the vision behind this season and Maybe most importantly, try to explore and excavate why some of the changes and decisions that that were made here rattle us so deeply, and then maybe even try to see past them. And I want to read a quote from the Stranger Things Worlds Turned Upside Down book. Quote, After two very intense seasons in dark spaces with grim monsters and claustrophobia-inducing tunnels, Matt and Ross Duffer decided it was time to brighten things up. Literally. 
with a Somerset storyline fueled by young love and raging hormones. Aesthetically, it's going to feel very different, Ross Duffer says. Everyone is going to this new mall, seeing movies, and of course the Hawkins Pool is open for business. I think there will be a sense of fun and joy. The biggest battle young heroes Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will are facing may simply be growing up. Burgeoning romance already has strained the ties among the original members of the party of Dungeons and Dragons adventurers, and each of the boys is struggling with awkward entry into full-blown adolescence. A stage of life when nothing is quite as simple as it once was. It's really the final summer of their childhood, Ross Duffer adds. They're dealing with growing up, with these complicated new relationships. They're starting to fall apart a little bit, and maybe they don't love playing Dungeons & Dragons as much as they used to. Naturally, that's going to generate conflict. Adds Levy, If season two was about the desperate desire for normalcy and the impossibility of normalcy in Hawkins, season three is about change. It's about the changes in the kids' relationships with each other. It's about romantic relationships that change friendships. It's about adult relationships that maybe change in tone. It's about Hawkins as a town changing with the arrival of a new mall and what that means for the small town in the 1980s, end quote. So that's kind of the vibe I think that's important to keep in mind. And I hadn't read that part of that book in a while. Mm -hmm. And so that offered me a little bit more context to understand what they were going for. But yeah, we'll readdress that in Final Thoughts. Moving into the actual episode properly, <laughs> we open June 28th, 1984 in the USSR. And some scientists walk into this control room looking a bit wary. And Alexei is one of those too, even though we don't technically know who he is yet. But we see Alexei and this other scientist with two keys and that they put into the two ports. And when they do so, it starts up the mechanism. A lot of computer-generated imagery right away. Already a major tone shift from all that's come before. I mean, they are not wasting any time with saying, this is going to be a different season, this is a different feel. But the device opens a rift in the stone wall, looking an awful lot like the gate that Eld closed last season, and outspills some familiar-looking tendrils as the rift opens. The whole building starts to shake, though, and the device shuts down before blowing up and killing all of the techs in the room, which prompts the general to come down and looks at the resealed wall. They start speaking Russian. One scientist starts making excuses until the Terminator-looking dude picks him up and starts choking him. Immediately thereafter, we get the Russian choral song that starts playing in the background. Apparently, it's the Red Army is the Strongest, which, according to good old Wikipedia, is popularly known as White Army Black Baron, a Russian marching song written in 1920 during the Russian Civil War. And the song was meant as a combat anthem for the Red Army. So, subtle is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's just, it's it's a lot. It just really reads like a Bond villain sequence. It does. The whole thing. Why are they doing this? What good do they think will come of it? Don't matter. It's, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> and yeah. like, I mean, maybe that's what they're pulling from, the like Dr. No bullshit or something. Maybe. And then like, this guy is the Terminator. Do we have any hints about why he's able to pick up a fully grown adult and choke him with one hand? No. My expectation from just this episode alone was that he was potentially like a test subject. Because we're in kind of like an alternate version of Hawkins' lab. But yeah, you're right. I wonder if it is kind of a, if that's if they were pulling from Bond. Although I will say that what follows that, where the general walks past the Terminator choking the head scientist 
towards Alexi, the yet unnamed Alexi, to say, you've got a year, I think it is. Yeah. That gave me, like, re- like kind of a combination of, like, I mean, the Terminator, because the guy clearly looks like the Terminator, but it also gave me really strong, like, Empire Strikes Back vibes. Every time I expect him to say to Alexi, you're in charge, because that's what Vader does to, like, all of his subordinates throughout Empire. I was just remembering that one guy who just, like dies like so ultra dramatically (laughs) well what i love about that scene is is um is admiral piet i don't think he's admiral at that point but like i think that's admiral ozel who dies behind him but the way that piet who's played by kenneth collie in the front has that like shifty eyed like (laughs) look in front like yes lord vader you know (laughs) he's one of my favorite parts of the empire strikes back my dad and i loved him he was so great yeah, anyway, but I, that's what I always expect that that interaction with Alexi to be, that he's yeah. going to say, like, all right, you're running things now. But it's no, you now just you have a year to make this work. And then, yeah, the choral music just ramps up I'm like, damn. And I don't know. I found myself wondering, like, like what? Like the Russian dialogue wasn't enough. Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein weren't trusted to treat this section with appropriately subtle musical score or a needle drop that wasn't quite so heavy-handed I, I like i don't know I don't know, dude the scientist falls to the floor and outside the general boards a helicopter ready to depart underneath the soviet flag but that's when we cut to our title sequence and we are thrown forward one year so it's june 1985 to a very enthusiastic makeout session between mike and l <laughs> and the song playing never surrender by Corey hart turns out to be diegetic because mike pauses the making out to break into the chorus. And I'd actually forgotten that. I actually thought that was surprisingly in character. Yeah. I had completely forgotten it. I was like, oh, we're just, you know, jump ahead a year later and it's just them them kissing because they can now. But it was like, oh, no. Okay. That's very much something Mike would do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cute. It actually is really cute. Yeah. And Hopper out in the living room leans back to check on the kids. <laughs> he sees I them. believe my exact words were, bruh. and he sees them kissing and he shouts and l shuts the door and hopper jumps up shouting about the three inch minimum breaks into the room by which point mike and l have separated and they feign innocence (laughs) but then they chat via walkie talkie as mike bikes away and first they do they do mock hopper but then they talk about wanting to see one another again and wish they were still together and i do think it's cute that l has been like inducted into the party officially by having her own walkie yeah they were already calling her one of their party last season but it's like no but she's got her own walkie talkie now like yeah she's really in truly truly in now yeah that's also a really good way to get around her not having to go through the uh 11 wireless every time she wants to communicate with him yeah that's true uh, and Mike arrives at Starcourt Mall, chastised by Will and Lucas that he's late again. Then Mike and Lucas argue about Mike's behavior all the way into the mall. And Lucas impersonates Mike in what feels like a callback kind of to season one. Mm. Like when he was like, oh, Elle, will you marry me? Like yeah. that whole thing. When At which point Mike had not actually been acting spoony towards Elle. Not yet. But we actually just heard like basically the exchange that <laughs> Lucas mocks between them. And Lucas says, however, jokingly, we'll never hang out with any of our friends. And Will laughs about it, both of which are curious to me, given where the season goes with all this. Yeah. But yeah, and we get a sweet me view of Starcourt Mall as they like 
race through. They pass Erica on the way who calls them nerds as they rush by. And oh my god, the color. Yeah. I will say it's a lot less jarring now than it was on the first watch. Like, it's such a contrast to the last two seasons. This feels closer. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it feels a little closer to 80s caricature and stereotype. The sort of, like, you know, quote-unquote amusement park version of the decade. Yeah. Not unlike the way that Back to the Future treated the 50s. I feel like the previous two seasons, full of homage and reference though they were, I feel like they felt more like 80s slice of life and vibe more than they felt like this. No, I think you're really onto something there. One of the things I remember talking about in season one, episode one, is how grounded everything is, not just in the 80s aesthetic, but in like the entire worldview and like the detail and it was so well grounded this just doesn't just doesn't feel the same way i would also argue that mad max chapter one mad max does the same thing because it feels like the fantastical elements are going to feel that much more scary and dangerous and you're dealing with characters that have all like been through some shit even before we meet them yeah And this feels very like, well, we're all in a good place now. I think that might be what they were going for. Mm. Also, it's a different season. It's not the fall. So like a lot of the colors and the costumes are brighter because it's end of June. We're almost to the 4th of July. That comes with the territory. And I think what probably you and I are just like, we kind of liked that autumnal, chillier, more austere atmosphere. And I think like, you know, if they are trying to make Starcourt a character in and of itself, separate from the fact that it is in fact what it is and have it be kind of like a symbol for the article that Nancy pitches like you know the the threat to small town America type deal I think that maybe the colors and the vibe and the like sort of overwhelming opulence of them all we're seeing them all through the filter of the characters Mm. because they've never seen anything like this it's new it's sparkly it's it's bright but I (laughs) I don't know that it's that successful for me. I, I don't even necessarily think that like I associate or that I need to associate Stranger Things with being Autumn. But there's just something about there's something about it that doesn't land. I think and I think part of it is that like something that I have I have thought about a lot in the last like couple of weeks and preparing to to do season three is that I and and, and he, as of this recording, we're do we're in the midst of the build up to season four. And so in thinking a lot about, okay, well, season four is going to be spring break. I actually think that they did seasons three and four in the wrong order. By that, I mean, I think they should have done spring and then summer. The The idea is great, but I think it was too jarring too quickly. Too much of a tone shift too fast. Because I don't actually think any of this is like bad, inherently bad. I just think it's too much of a contrast mm. too quickly. Mm-hmm. The last season wasn't Halloween, and I think naturally that time period, like I agree, it doesn't have to be autumn, but what by but by setting it then, it lends itself to like it's colder, they all have coats on. Like right. it it's a it's naturally more dreary. And something actually another podcaster I heard once say about Neil Gaiman and Neil Gaiman's work is that even if it's something lovely and nice, there's always this underlying sense of that something might not be that there's something at the edge that you just can't quite see you have no reason to suspect it but just there's this vibe like something's Mm -hmm. just not quite totally 
it's not all it's not all like happy mm-hmm. like there's just something like I don't know what the word would... I don't remember the words that she used, but, like, that it's just... There's a little bit of danger, like, just around yeah. the corner. I actually kind of like that about Neil Gaiman's work, but I think that's something that you find in the those first two seasons is that even in the stuff, like, with the kids, like, you know, Nancy and Steve and Barb and, like, that whole stuff in the first season, even though you're dealing with, like, teen romance there. Because, again, that's teen romance, let us not forget. Yeah. But it always feels like there's something creepy, like, just under the surface. Right. But it's just, it's different. And I think that the difference was too abrupt. Yeah. But yeah, so they move through the mall and they end up at Scoops Ahoy, the ice cream parlor. (laughs) They and us meet Robin and they ask if Steve is there and he begrudgingly lets them through the back door to sneak into the movie theater for free. They sneak past the Back to the Future poster and into a packed theater playing a sneak preview of Day of the Dead. Um, But then the movie shuts off. All of Starcourt goes dark. Full on power outage. And the musical score here is the track The Upside Down, which I thought was, it's not like a earth shattering choice, but I liked it. And the power goes out across all of Hawkins, which leads to the barn at the edge of town where the ground is shaking and some freaky shit's going on. Mm-hmm. Right before the power comes back on. And while the film starts up again, Will feels the sensation of the mind flare. And Mike notices. He notices something's up with Will and asks if he's okay. And Will, like last season, pretends like he's fine. And though I I had to admit, though, like, I don't know that there's a whole lot Will could really say in this moment because they're yeah. in a big crowded theater. And then cut to the next morning when Jonathan and Nancy wake up late, scrambling, <laughs> and she sneaks out the window. Which is hilarious to me. Like, why is she bothering? I don't. Well, clearly, because, yeah, Joyce doesn't care. Joyce knows. And yeah, like... She just, Joyce continues to look healthier and healthier from season to season. Mm. She, Joyce is an MVP of the season for me and the series at large. Like, even when the writing can, like, stray out of character, like, somehow Ryder just always manages to stay consistent. And, yeah, like, I just, yeah, MVP. Will calls Jonathan and Nancy's behavior gross, to which Joyce (laughs) says she doesn't think he'll think it's gross when he falls in love, to which he responds, I'm not going to fall in love. This season is very much Will coming to terms with the fact that he is either ace or he is gay. Or bi. Maybe. But I remember being Will's age and being very much like, uh-uh, you are not gonna catch me behaving like that. I do think it's cute, though, that Joyce doesn't seem to buy it. She's just yeah. like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I choose to believe that she will still feel that way regardless of whatever happens with Will, whenever, if ever, and with whomever he loves. Oh, yeah. She used Christmas lights to communicate with him in another dimension. <laughs> She's not going to fucking care if he has a boyfriend. Like, it's not, it is not that serious. The Christmas lights and the upside down, that was serious. I think, like, kind of like what you said about, like, like that the Demogorgon or the Demodog body in the fridge would probably not be the weirdest thing that she ever found in the fridge. Will turning out to not be straight would probably not be the strangest thing. She's like, But no. also, like, we never find out what happened with that, by the way. <laughs> the dog. The dog. We never find out. Like, I guess we just have to infer that, like, we told Owens about it and they came and got it. But I'm like, I want to see that scene. Just them picturing Joyce just, like, wanting, like, orange juice or something and opening her fridge and just being like, oh, Jesus Christ. Do you, do you remember 
from the first series of Sherlock when John like goes into the kitchen and like opens the fridge door and there's a head and he just goes, oh, <laughs> sorry, I should have waited till you weren't, weren't drinking. Yeah, probably much the same vibe. But yeah, Jonathan and Nancy pick her on the way to the office and he tries to be encouraging, but she shuts it down. She's like, and I think they're definitely sowing seeds for their argument to come. Their car passes the Hendersons, which hands us off to, to Dustin, who's trying to reach the rest of the party when, as he's on his way home from camp, having been away a whole month. His mom absolutely knows that the kids are waiting for him, I think. And I also- Like, where did she go? Did she just, like, drop him off and bounce? Maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't matter. I also wonder if part of the reason why, like, earlier interactions with the kids as a group felt a little off may have been precisely because Dustin wasn't there. Mm. And, like, his presence, I mean, and I just think in general, his presence changes the chemistry of their group dynamic. And perhaps that's also what contributes to some of the BS that goes on later. Mm-hmm. And then the scene from the trailer plays out in which the robots and toys start coming to life on their own. They seemingly freaking Dustin out until the rest of the party sneaks out to surprise him, which is really sweet. Yes, it is. It's very sweet. Too bad it culminates with him spraying Lucas in the eyes with the hairspray, though. (laughs) (laughs) The road to hell, etc., etc. And uh, it's an interesting transition though in the cut to the crowded hawkins pool karen wheeler and the other women hang out noting when becky the female lifeguard comes down from the seat they all pose and stare when billy walks out in fact everyone seems to stare while he walks by and the music stops when he blows the whistle and calls out a kid who's running so i have i have it's quite a large oof i mean this whole sequence is really crude like i i get that it's supposed to be an inverse of an 80s trope Fast Times, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but some of the stuff we've looked at throughout the past two seasons have been like, well, when they make an homage, it's still moving the story forward. You could remove the homage and it still contributes to Stranger Things and it as its own entity. Mm-hmm. This doesn't do that. This is not part of the story or character development. It's just reenactment. And we would lose nothing if it got cut. Like twice, Billy has to call that kid a name. Twice. I find that I want to give the Duffers the benefit of the doubt in that I want to give them the credit that they that they know that what Billy says is awful and that maybe that's the point that like they're trying to make him unlikable like at odds you know with the whole smoking hot slow-mo strut business but then that feels at odds with the ending of the episode and the season at large when they're we're clearly supposed to empathize with him so like what are they doing? I really really enjoy breaking down the difference between male gaze and female gaze. And that in, a, in and of itself is very, very complicated because you have straight male gaze, then you have gay male gaze, and then you have like what is expected to be female gaze versus what is, and like, you know, the difference between Harley Quinn in Birds of Prey versus in, in the other films. And, and like, I think all of that is there, there's like a really rich conversation to be had there. It's possible they were trying to flip that like oh you know the girl comes out of the swimming pool and the water is flowing off of her and she's like tossing her hair back and forth like you know they're like maybe they were trying to invert that by having billy be the object of desire however this is not female gaze female gaze would be portraying billy in a way that is desirable and attractive from start to finish 
I like men, I can tell you Billy is not desirable to me in that sequence. And it's not because I don't think Dacre Montgomery is attractive. He's a very attractive person. Billy, in the way that he is acting, is not attractive. He's actually being shot in a very male gaze way. There's so much emphasis on his physicality, on his strength, on the effect that he has on all of the women. It's uncomfortable to me. It's also uncomfortable that all of these women are only at the pool, it seems like. We're, we're encouraged to think that they're only at the pool to gawk at Billy and to make him a sexual object. It's possible that, like, a group of women would be like, oh, you know, check out Billy. Like, Billy is, Billy's looking very Baywatch or, like, Billy's looking hot or whatever. But, like, purposely going and, like, pin up posing as he walks by. Like, I just, I just don't know of any women who would behave like that. I mean, maybe, like, teenage girls to a guy that is their age. Like, yeah. I mean, actually, think about the way that they did that last season. Like, when he pulled up, when you first saw him and the girls were like, Will you check out that ass? Mm -hmm. like, and he's like, part of that's because he pulls up in the car. And I could look at all that and just be like, okay, well, I'm really fussy about this kind of thing. Whatever. But I think the thing that really that tips this scene over the edge for me and makes it really actually very uncomfortable is the fact that these women, including Karen, continue to react to him as if he's sex on a stick after he has just been incredibly cruel to this other person even if it had been an adult that he had like called lard ass and had berated or even if he had used some other kind of insult the fact that he is like incredibly cruel to another person and they continue to seriously want to jump his bones there's something dark about that if he had been yelling at the kid and saying hey no running you know it's dangerous you know what the rules are. If you do it again, I'm gonna kick you out. That would not have bothered me if he's saying something like that. He's actually looking out for the kid's safety. If he said something like, I don't want you falling and cracking your head open, fine. But the fact that he went out of his way to assert his power and degrade mm -hmm. the other person and that the person's a kid, oh, I don't like well, it. And it, it brings me back to the same question. What does this do for Billy's character? What? How are we supposed to respond to this? Like, honestly, I'm kind of surprised he didn't yell at two kids fighting. That would have been set up for what we see at the end. Mm -hmm. Like, we're supposed to know that, like, Billy is hot shit. But I don't give a shit that Billy is super hot. I don't care about him. I don't like him. I don't feel any empathy for him, especially given everything that we have seen from him yeah. in the season before. And if you wanted to lean into that, where he's yeah. like projecting this hot shit exterior, but there's like a lot of inner turmoil inside, we can absolutely do that. But you have to actually do it. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, he's hot shit. And then, oh, he got eated. And honestly, if they wanted to, like, really, if they were trying to make us not like him, then I think they should have leaned farther in that direction. I actually think that it's really important and healthy to show sexuality and relationships mired in sexuality on screen. I just don't like when it's done in a very exploitative way. That is the word. Exploitative. Yeah. 
Well, the cut to a less troubling, yes, <laughs> at least at least to a degree. Uh, we cut to Joyce and Hopper in an otherwise empty store where he is ranting about Elle and Mike. I don't know if I loved it the first time I watched this, but I do actually kind of love this sequence now. I don't agree with anything Hopper's saying, and I pretty much do agree with everything Joyce is saying, but, like, Hopper just being, like, at his wit's end, like, he can handle absolutely everything, but he can't handle his daughter kissing her boyfriend is just kind of delightful to me. One of my big fears was that all we were going to see from Elle and Mike was that, well, now that they can make out, that's all we're going to see them do. And it's not all we see them do, but I I remember feeling like, really? Not what I expected from them. So in a way, I, I don't know that I would, maybe I didn't agree with Hopper, but I was a little bit frustrated mm-hmm. with how that was playing out. And Joyce does advise to him that they have a heart to heart. He's in, like, I'm sure he's encountered the term, but he's probably always just scoffed at it, you know? And I think what he's angling towards in this whole conversation is, maybe you could do it for me. <laughs> I don't know. There's still something about this scene that, like, bothers me. And I think probably what it is is I don't like showing Hopper as this, like, emotionally incompetent person. After what we watched him learn last season, it mm. feels like we're going to see this in a minute with Steve. It feels like that very cliche thing of we're just going to do a hard character reset, even though the hopper from the first season was very closed off. He wasn't like this bombastic. He yeah. was just very like closed off. I maybe would have preferred to see more of that, even though I just said I don't like the hard character reset. But it it you know it feels like it, it it's of a piece of that idea. It's not to say it's badly written. It's not to say that it's it's a bad idea. I just. I don't think I like it. I think I said about all the way back in season one, that's my favorite Hopper. I like Hopper when he's like stoic, guarded. I just like that interpretation of him better. I think that love, romantic love specifically, is Hopper's Achilles heel. I think that his romantic love for Joyce is more difficult for him to navigate than any of his other emotional relationships. The possibility of Elle being in a romantic relationship is more difficult for him than any other challenge that he might encounter as a dad. I think that he has confronted as much as is possible for any parent the possibility of losing Elle to physical danger, but I do think that it's really still very, very difficult for him to square with Elle being in love. And that may be a headcanon, and I do agree that I prefer Hopper to be a more competent and less bombastic character. I don't know that I love Himbo Hopper, but Hopper is a person who very much relies on control. Mm-hmm. And he cannot control Elle and Mike wanting to kiss 24-7. So I would have expected him to get more more physically controlled than be like, throwing his arms around and I don't know and I think this is a me problem and I totally totally admit that I just I don't know there's just something about this scene I just don't like I don't yeah. I just don't like it so I'm kind of actually kind of glad that you do because I wish I did <laughs> yeah I also think there's a little bit of like not approaching this scene through a critical lens going on for me you know I'm just like <laughs> you know like <laughs> Hopper's being silly But I do agree with you that this is a big departure for Hopper's character and Harbour's performance. 
Meanwhile, Nancy gets to the Hawkins post with lunch, and she bursts into the dark room and ruins Jonathan's photos, then rolls her eyes after she closes the door again, and then delivers the food to the main boardroom where the men are discussing stories and being misogynistic assholes about it, until Nancy interrupts with a suggestion about Starcourt versus small business, which are leader of the pack here, not the editor, but the leader of the assholes, it seems, pretends to jive with until he demeans her. It felt like this scene was like them trying to write like misogyny from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know what it feels like. Yeah. What I think would have been a much more realistic, much more grounded approach to this would be to have her pitch the idea and for them to be like, you know, that's a decent idea, Nancy. But for right now, we really need you to focus on, it's like a, a polite way of saying, we need you to focus on what you were hired for. And also, by the way, you, you're continually getting my lunch order wrong. And then the next week, the article that she pitched shows up in the paper. Yep. That, I think, would have been a lot more realistic. Yeah, I know newsrooms are their own beast, but I don't know if they would have been that just, like, relentlessly, continually real bad. <laughs> it's very broad. It's very heavily staged and heavily exaggerated. Like, the raucous laughter, the way the music's cut and edited. Again, it's very heavy-handed. Back at Dustin's, Lucas tries to rinse out his eyes with the help from Max. But for some reason, we need another comedy beat with him noticing the zit on her face. I don't think we need it to sew, like, their eventual breakup later. Like, I just, why do we need this? We're spending screen time to establish that Max is a cool girl. I guess. Yeah, because she spends all her time with the boys. She doesn't get hurt. Like, later on in the episode when he is saying, like, nobody is as hot as whoever the hell. Oh, no, but uh, you're perfect. She just, like, brushes him off. Like, at that age, I probably would have, my feelings would have been a little bit hurt. Like, oh, so you don't think I'm smart or you don't think I'm hot? Which is it? You know, like, I'm not saying that's a healthy way to no, approach no. a relationship. But, like, 14-year-old me would have been upset. And she's just like, no, it's cool. In the next room, Dustin shows off his inventions from camp. And I'm I'm really sorry, I but there's also something about this scene that I just... And th this might be me just not taking my initial reaction glasses off enough, but it just seems like the three of them who are listening, it has this energy of, like, they're kind of just, like, putting up with Dustin's presentation, like, that they don't... They're not really that interested... And he's not put off by it, but it just seems like the show itself is somehow making fun of Dustin. Like, we're supposed to think that he's weird and excessively nerdy, but aren't they all nerds? If there is this theme of change and growing up and growing out of things, I can't imagine that they would all have just stopped being interested in science. Yeah. Full tilt this quickly. The school year only ended like a month ago. Yeah. Especially Mike wanting to be supportive of his best friends, no matter what that what shape that takes but dustin drops the news that he's got a girlfriend Susie, and they're gonna go and try to talk to her through cerebro back over at scoops ahoy steve is unsuccessfully flirting with female clientele and he is raked over the coals by robin who we get to meet a little bit more properly so actually what i'm gonna do here is i'm actually gonna play a clip from our 2019 discussion i want to hear the way that you phrased it back then this is the idea that you had as a, a script doctoring approach to how you would have written this scene. 
like the charisma is the word that I keep coming back to from season one. I understand that his life circumstances have changed, uh-huh. but like he was so fucking smooth that first season. And even into the second season too. Yeah. Like how I would have written that scene and how I would have directed it is girls and girls and girls and girls and girls are coming in the, into this scoops yep. ahoy trying to get a look at Steve and he just doesn't even register that these girls are paying him attention because he feels so much self-loathing mm-hmm. that he doesn't understand why girls would be looking at him and Robin's like I would have the whiteboard be like this is the 14th girl yep. that has been wanting yep. to go out with you and yep. you just don't even know and he's like I make three dollars an hour I couldn't even get into yeah. tech school oh yeah like much better reason I think that the suggestion is brilliant is because regardless of of the Scoops Ahoy uniform, I cannot fathom that his former high school royalty reputation would have fallen apart that fast. He would have only graduated a matter of two to three to maybe four weeks earlier. The one additional thing that I will offer all these years later to that to your idea is that he calls out his own in like the fact that he couldn't get in. Yeah. We have seen that he is a tactical thinker. And we will see that he notices background details. So I don't think that he would volunteer the information that he's not going to college. So my revision or or addition is that the girls are coming in, they're still keen on him, but he is flirting back. And then they ask him things like, "So so where are you going to school? Or so which college team will you be playing for? You know, stuff like that. And then he has to try to think on the spot. Oh, I'm taking a semester off or something like that. Well, and somehow that that, you know, he winds up being cornered and he ends up sort of fumbling and sort of forced to confess or like they can just tell he's making it up, which is kind of what he does in this scene. But that he wouldn't start there. Yeah. And that he'd be prompted by them. Because the thing is, I also get that for some people, when they have a setback and they're feeling not particularly confident, they will regress back to old behaviors, old habits. But I just don't think that Steve would do this. Steve is not L. Steve is not even Mike. We don't get time to go into Steve's inner life. So the only thing that we see is his outer behaviors. But I don't think that we as audience members are supposed to, in air quotes, necessarily be paying as much attention to Steve as you and I do. But what that means is you know, up to now, it has fostered a really engaging conversation. What, you know, what are Steve's motivations? And now it's just like, there's really no more investment in him as a character. When he talks to Robin, and she says a thing about which I actually really love that moment of tenderness from her. Like, I don't I don't love the like, you suck thing. Like, it's, you know, it's fine as far as it goes. But like, the, the moment where she kind of sets that aside and is like, why don't you just try being you? Like, because yeah. I think even by that point, she's already going like, you're not at all the person I thought you were, or at least not nearly as bad as I thought. But that mo- little monologue he has where he just goes, this is basically everything that's been going on for me. They blow right past that. We could have traded in some of these cringier jokes for more time with that. Or like, maybe, I don't know, let Joe Curie have a moment there at least. Like, I get that the whole point of that, to some extent, is to demonstrate what she's talking about. Because the moment where he, like, bounces back to the counter and does the, like, ahoy, ladies, like, that feels like a cringy inverse or repetition of the when he opened the doors 
for Nancy and Barb in season one, then it felt like cool. But now it, I don't know. I just, there's a lot of missed opportunity here. Yeah. If nothing else, if they had just let him live in that monologue a little bit, I think, I think it would have, I think it would have gone a long way. Yeah. I do too. Back at the department store, Joyce tries to coach Hopper through the heart to heart. And then there's a moment between them in which Hopper just goes for it and asks her to dinner. But she says no. And he's clearly disappointed. And then it's understandably awkward. The kids climb the hill while Dustin fills them in about the obstacles for he and Susie that she's Mormon and he's not. And it's actually a pretty decent excuse by Stranger Things Kid Logic anyway for why Dustin has to go through all this effort. Well, also, I mean, remember in the 80s, long distance charges were a thing. Uh-huh. You can get on the phone and just like talk for hours and hours with your friend who was, you know, across the country because your parents would find out and you'd get in trouble for having racked up long distance charges. But apparently Elle has to get home. So she and Mike bounce. <laughs> At 4 p.m. The exchange of it's romantic, it's gross, it's bullshit feels really scripted yeah will gets the feeling again while they resume their climb and again doesn't say anything but meanwhile rats run by converging at the barn in the basement of which they all keel over and explode in super gross fashion yeah not too proud to admit i didn't watch that this time around and then there's a surreal match cut to karen wheeler doing laps in the pool and billy watches her from the lifeguard seat in corresponding creepy slow motion (laughs) And Karen gets out of the pool, and he offers her a towel. Lots more innuendo follows as they flirt, and he offers to give her private lessons. The workout of your life. This time around, I was really approaching it from a critical stance, like watching it and and seeing like, okay, you know, how do I feel about the way Billy's acting? How do I feel about the way Karen's acting? And so on. The scene, I don't dig it. I don't ship it. But I do have to say that, like, she never says yes. She never says that she's going to show up. If I had been in Billy's position, I would have assumed that it was not a date. So within the context of not liking the scene as a whole, I like that she is, like, kind of overwhelmed by him flirting with her because she's clearly very attracted to him. But that she doesn't say, why, yes, I will meet you at a motel motel and cheat on my husband and so on the look that she gives him yes. at the end it's that very like it's the capital t capital l the look yeah but you're right she never actually says yes one of the things that i think that they got a lot of flack for well it's not even that they got flack for it i think the fandom responded to just like we talked about in season two oh billy's gay mm, yeah or billy's bi but i feel like by them doing what they did between billy and karen this season something that you said back in 2019 was that you know, the reaction of, no, he's not totally straight, totally straight. You all, you kind of, I think, gave them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and said, well, maybe to some degree, that's what Billy is doing to himself. I'm straight. I'm straight. I'm straight. I'm straight. I don't know if that's what was going on. I think that's giving them a little bit too much credit. I think they were giving him a case of the not case. For the record, every ship is okay, but I personally don't ship Billy and Steve because I think that would be an incredibly toxic relationship. I mean, I don't give a shit if people ship toxic relationships. That's just not my bag. But there's a whole subset of people out there who ship things, like, even though they're toxic or because they're toxic, because that's just what they go to fanfiction for, and that's fine. I think it's very obvious that Billy has an attraction to Steve. I think it's very obvious that 
Billy wants to pursue a relationship of some kind with Karen. I mean, I think they want us to believe that he's very much attracted to her. I think it's interesting, like, that there may be a little bit of, like, edible stuff Mm -hmm. going on Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But he does seem to, like, see her as a human. And that is actually kind of interesting. I just wish they had handled it a lot, a lot more delicately. Back on the hill, the kids reach the top and... Susie does not copy. Back at Hopper's cabin, Mike and Elle resume their making out. Down the hall, Hopper rehearses this heart-to-heart script and attempts to make good on it. But to put it mildly, it does not it does not go well. Oh god, this scene. First the kids just sit expectantly, waiting, but as Hopper hems and haws, they get impatient and confused. Then Mike makes a joke and whispers something to Elle in open disrespect. So Hopper says that Mike's mom called and she needs him home. Apparently, I mean, if you've watched the gag reel, then you know, like, Harper really struggled with this scene. He could not get through that line of, it's your grandma, without laughing. Like I didn't know that. Yeah, like, like the end of the gag reel is, like, take after take after take of them trying to get through this. And, like, Wolfhard and Brown are, like... What, what, what why? Like, like, what, what, like, and they're laughing because he's, he's laughing. laughing. Yeah. And kind of contrary to what's happening in the scene, Wolfhard is like, come on, man, you got this. You got yeah. this. Like, <laughs> you're going to, like, you're going to do, you're going to do great. Like, it's, you know, giving him a high five and everything. Like, it's just so funny. I love that way more yeah. than I love the scene itself. Hopper leading Mike out to the truck where he's, Mike is just firing questions. <laughs> like, and that feels actually very on yeah. brand. Like, yeah. what's wrong? Like, is she okay? Did she fall? Like, he's, he's yeah, like, <laughs> he's very concerned. Yeah. Like, and then Hopper is like, no, nothing's wrong with Nana. <laughs> you know, and this is once they get into the truck. The only thing wrong that's going on is what's going on between him and Elle. That's what Hopper says. And at which point Mike calls him a lying piece of shit is actually the same thing that he said he uses that exact yeah. phrase at the end of season two he tries to leave but hopper keeps him locked in the car and delivers an ultimatum we'll say mm-hmm. the tone of of these these two scenes really more in the truck it just it oscillates between serious and comedic so many times and so quickly yeah it gives you a little bit of a whiplash when Hopper says, crazy? I Because I actually buy into that. Like, to me, that's where it shifts to serious. So that then I think you buy <laughs> Mike's, like, huge eyes. <laughs> like, like. I think that Mike is being a little shit to Hopper because he is still resentful of Hopper keeping him and Elle apart in season two. That I can very much be on board with. Him acting out because he still feels resentful or is still like coping with having been without her for so long and and thinking that she was dead but I just don't think that it's successful because I don't think that Mike would act out in this way you know as much as I did enjoy the department store conversation with Joyce I just don't think that Hopper would have ever tolerated this being what they did. I don't think that Hopper would have tolerated the two of them being by themselves in her bedroom. I think he would have been like, you can hang out on the couch and watch TV or talk or hold hands or whatever you're doing, but you're not going into your room. That's what a cop would do. He is yes. chief of police. That is what season one Hopper would have done. And granted, there isn't, they're not doing anything 
wrong, I don't think, in the way, like, yeah, they're making out a lot. But I think I said to you as we were watching the episode, like, I think the only parts of their bodies that are actually touching mm-hmm. are their lips. They're, yeah. like, leaning into each other. So, like, you know, this is not a, like, we, you know, we have to have the talk kind of thing or anything like that. Really, it's just about being respectful of the space and also, like, being respectful of Hopper as an authority figure in Elle's life, despite Elle's special circumstances. Yeah, I just, I think that that defiance and that pushback would have manifested differently. I think Hopper would have handled it differently if we were keep if we were keeping characterization in line with the previous seasons. And that was just not what's going on here. Mike rebelling in a way. To me, a better version of that would be her, him sneaking her out to go off to to Starcourt Mall, like or you know because something that I something that I said in 2019 that uh, I think we'll get into more probably in the next episode is that Mike's characterization of the past two seasons, and I would even say a little bit we get in we see more of this later in season three is that he likes to introduce things to people. He likes to show he likes to not necessarily be the leader, but like I think that's why he liked to DM. I think that's why and I don't mean he likes to mansplain. I don't mean that at all, but he likes to like when he and L meet, he's like, well, this is the recliner and yeah, like yeah, yeah. let me let me introduce things to you. I like, you know, these are my toys, and he likes sharing things with people. It just would have been cool to have seen more of that. Yeah. And I think that especially if he is showing open rebellion to Hopper, then yeah, like he's sneaking her out or he's like being more like clo- cold shoulder, like being openly condescending just doesn't feel like Mike to me. I do enjoy though <laughs> when when Mike looks at him with those huge eyes, <laughs> it takes me right back to the the scene in the office. Back in the beginning of the series, where like he's like looking at Hopper and like nodding and like it's a real road. It's just (laughs) with a name that's made up, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We cut out of that to back to the hill where it's now full dark and still no word from Susie. You know, we got we get that exchange between Lucas and Max, and then they leave. And like honestly, I don't blame them. They've been just sitting around like waiting at this point. Like we're we got we're gonna go. You know, they're probably gonna go and make out now. (laughs) Probably. and then Will has to go too, but he asks about playing D&D tomorrow, which implies to me that, like, yeah, like, he still wants to hang out with Dustin. He's just like, I, you know, yeah, I have a slightly overprotective parent at this point, too. Uh-huh. But once all alone, of course, Cerebro does pick up a signal, but it ain't Susie. And we cut to the Russian base of operations and catch up with the still unnamed Alexei supervising a new device, presumably, because we don't see it. Meanwhile, Karen Wheeler gets all dolled up to Cutting Crew's I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight, which I actually think is a really, it's a perfect needle drop because I feel like you can find some double meaning there. The end of her, potentially end of her relationship with her husband, her lifestyle, especially as she goes downstairs and she sees Ted and Holly asleep in front of the TV. And that's when she seems to waver. Billy, on the other hand, flies down the road, rehearsing what he's going to say to Karen. And I don't know, man, like between this and the scene at the pool, there's something about the way that he's playing this. He sounds a lot more amateurish than he did in that scene with with Karen at the end of season two. Totally in control. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly how to play you. But something about these two sequences feel more like a kid playing at doing this thing. So there's, there's two possible interpretations. One is that Billy is great at manipulating people 
But he's not used to women being like, yeah, sure, okay, I'll meet you at this, like, out-of-the-way motel and we can have an affair. So it's possible that this is... I mean, if not his first younger woman, this may be his first older woman. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's actually feeling a little bit vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And then the other kind of interpretation is that they're just trying to make him human because he's about to get eaten. Or so we assume. Or so we assume. Because, yeah, something uh, rams his car off the road. He gets out at the now familiar looking barn and he takes his anger out on his car for some reason. He does not deserve that card. I, I want that <laughs> on record. He does not deserve that car. I mean, the car didn't do anything. No. And he only seems to question that when he spots something gooey on the side of it where it was hit. Something moves around, unseen, grabs his ankle and drags him down into the basement. Into the pit of despair. And that's where the episode ends. Final thoughts? It's time for a drink. Ah, uh, yeah, that happened. This was really not a strong start. If this was just something that I was checking out for the first time, I would not proceed. No. I feel a little less judgmental about it now, but I, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with that statement, at least to a degree. This does not to me have any of the same opening kick-ass power that either The Vanishing of Will Byers or Mad Max did. Yeah. And re-watching this episode for a critical rewatch, I liked it more than I expected to. And one of the biggest telltale signs of how different it is is the fact that all the, fin the, the finesse, truly, the subtlety is gone. Yeah. Not to say that we don't get character development, we don't get great moments, because we do. Mm -hmm. I liked Robin immediately. Yeah. I really feel like this episode indicates that they got spooked after season two. Mm -hmm. I think that because the reception was nowhere near as strong as season one, and they, because of some of the nature of the feedback they got, mm -hmm. where they tried to make the world bigger, when they tried to do things that were out of what we already expected. And I'm not just talking about the Lost Sister. I mean, there are other elements of that season that I think do that. I didn't like like, not having a big bad in Hawkins, I think. You know, not just Brenner, but the fact that the lab wasn't quite so cut and dry evil. I think that this is a direct response to the negative criticism. And I think that that makes me sad because I really think they, if they had trusted their own instincts more, and I don't know, maybe I'm giving them too much, you know, credit for season two. And it was just what they wanted to do in the moment. It didn't go past that. But yeah. I just, it's hard not to see this as a big step backwards. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I'm kind of reminded not to, you know, step into something that's very controversial, but I am kind of reminded of the difference between The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker mm -hmm. in that The Last Jedi was released, it had the reception that it had, and rather than sticking to their guns and being like, no, this is the vision that we have or that we had for the sequel trilogy, mm -hmm. this is the direction mm -hmm. we're going, Yeah, maybe you just prefer the, you know, the Ridge Tridge, that's cool. They tried to reverse the freight train and it did not work. Now, the difference between The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker is significantly larger and more atrocious. I was going to say, I do than think Than the so. difference between Stranger Things 2 and 3. Stranger Things 3, even though, yes, I have sat here and have like, you know, voiced my grievances, I, I do actually still very much enjoy the show as of the end of season three so it's it's not it's not like that but i do see a little bit of like the same flavor happening mm -hmm. there are moments that are great that we will see as we go 
So what's your favorite scene of this this episode? That moment between Robin and Steve when she said, why don't you just try being yourself? When Nancy and Jonathan wake up and then even though it's ridiculous that she sneaks out because Joyce clearly knows she's there. Yeah. And and the conversation between Will and Joyce because they're adorable. Sure. That's my little pocket of happiness. I think that there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, something that I have said actually a lot in the past is that they do listen to their audience. And mm. I, I think that in some cases that is actually a really amazing thing. Yeah. That's where... Uh, you know, not in this episode, obviously, but in episodes to come, like, we really see them invest more in the D- Steve and Dustin relationship. Yeah. The fact that people seemed to really respond to Steve as a character, they've continued to include him more. I have a feeling we're going to see a lot more of him in season four. At the same time, I think this is a case of they went a little too far because I think people really responded to that scene at the end of season yeah. two with, with Karen, both positively and negatively. People were all over the map on that one. But I don't think they ever, I like, to me, that sequence did not read as, like, this is something that we have, like, plans for. Right. And so I, f- I feel that they heard that and tried to, like, really incorporate it. And it, yeah. it just didn't go the way I think it it could have. I mean, I not to say they, I don't know. It just, it gets icky. Yeah. I, I find that a lot of the stuff between them in this episode is icky. Mm-hmm. Not again, kind of to echo some of the stuff you said, like it's not just because there's like sexuality involved, it's more because of the fact that, yeah, like exactly what it looks like. She comes downstairs and there's Ted and Holly, you know, this is your life. And it's interesting that they don't overdo it with Ted and Holly, it's one shot that I actually did like, you know, in real life situations. I have very strong feelings about people who cheat on their partners. But what I really liked about that scene is it's not like, oh, Ted is so amazing and I love Ted. It's like, this is my life. And Ted trusts me. This is the life that we've built together. And I'm looking at throwing it away just for a bit of excitement. What am what am I doing? Is is what she's saying. And it's not, I love Billy or I could love Billy. And it's not, oh, I love Ted. Um, it actually reminded me a lot of this scene in the film Moonstruck where... The matriarch of the family is getting, like, flirted with by this guy who's roughly her age, actually. And they platonically have dinner together. And then he walks her home and he's, like, trying to flirt with her the whole time. And she's just kind of tolerating him. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like Karen and Billy in, in that way. But they get to her door and he's trying to, like, orchestrate an invitation inside. Eventually she says, no, because I know who I am. Mm. And I think that's kind of the conversation that Karen's having with herself at that moment. Who am I? And I don't think I'm going to do this. Yeah, the the episode could have done with a little bit more of this flavor. Yes. So moving forward, one of the things that's also in play here, right from the jump, is that, as we've discussed, you know, Stranger Things plays with genre. And up to now, it's mostly been like fantastical in or or, you know, at least in the adventure genres. It's been monster movies, fantasy, sci-fi, thriller, horror. And this, I believe, this season introduces 80s teen comedy and rom-com. And I think that's why a lot of people buy into it, because it is on brand for the decade for 80s nostalgia, but they don't necessarily jive with those other genres. Like, tonally, it's a mismatch between, like, you know, more grounded stuff, like The Breakfast Club or Overboard, Mm. you know, compared to The Dark Crystal and The Goonies. Those two might work well, like, in a movie marathon, but I don't think they can occupy the same space, like the same world. 
Like one ultimately would have to submit to the other if you mash them together. Fantasy characters either get a break from their usual like high concept, dire stakes adventures, or the normies from something more like our own world get a shock that magic and monsters are real, you know, or they get wrapped up in all the conspiracy theories they've heard about and they now must get involved. Right. So to have the tones of both in play here, it, granted, Season one managed to do a lot of that, like I, you know, like I said, with Nancy and Steve and Barb and Jonathan, but that was a lot more subtle, and it always seemed to be leading back to the Demogorgon, to Hawkins' lab, and the bigger picture. I don't know that that feels true here, and maybe I'm, again, way overthinking it, but that was just something I found myself thinking about. So in that regard, that kind of leads me back to the quote that I mentioned at the top, because I think that that may have been part of, kind of like, this may be what a lot of people felt about the lost sister, like... It didn't work for them because it felt too out of place with what was what else was going on. I don't see it that way. There may be people who don't feel like these genres are at odds with what was going on. And, sure. and this may have been, you know, the Duffers and, and Sean Levy trying to say, we want to we want to play with the form. We want to yeah. try something different. And and if that's the case and if that's really what they're getting at in those those opening quotes and that really was their vision and they really were trying to continue the genre mashing. I actually can appreciate that. So I know I spent most of the episode going, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I still kind of feel like that, that they're... I, well, I there's a difference between I don't like this, this didn't land for me, versus this sucks, this is bad, and you should feel bad. <laughs> and and I think we are doing a little bit of this sucks and this is bad and you should feel bad with the <laughs> Billy stuff. Yes. Yeah. But, but I don't think that we're doing that so much with the like... You know, I didn't jive with the Star Court. You know, I didn't jive with the Hopper being the overprotective dad. So it didn't land for us, but that doesn't mean that it's inherently bad. It just means it didn't land for us. And I do think that, you know, I reserve the right to be a little disappointed by that. Sure. Because I liked what came before so much. Yeah. So I'm hoping that what we see in season or seasons to come is a blend of the two. Yeah. And then the very last thing I just want to throw out there is that, yes... In case you're wondering, I am quite delighted that what I would call my favorite show features a character who has my name. So, yes, I'm very much aware. I was very happy happy for you. And with that said, that will conclude our contemplation on Chapter 1, Susie, Do You Copy? If you've got comments, questions, thoughts, you can join the conversation. We're on Instagram as at Coffee and Contemplation Pod and TikTok as at Coffee and Hawkins like share subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please consider leaving us a review thanks for listening we'll see you next time over now we commence with season three discussing chapter one Susie, do you copy oof (laughs) (laughs) starting it coming in hot okay She's a lot closer with her kids. Well, I'm sure she knows about how much Mike and Elle are kissing, if not through Hop, then through Mike. Or through- <laughs> I was like, well, wait, wait, huh? My- so I'm sure that Mike is calling Joyce every evening and saying, Elle and I kissed and it was so nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think that's happening. It'd be hilarious, but I don't think it's happening.